Welcome to the Tales of Mythic Adventure podcast, coming to you from distant shores with your hosts, Jeff and Mob. Well, Mob, we've got a really exciting special guest tonight. We've got the original Rune Czar, Ken Rolston. That is very exciting. Ken, welcome to Tales of Mythic Adventure. Yes. Yes, this is me. This is me. <laughs> so one of we the have ex- confirmation that this is Ken. We have. Yes, I, this I, is Ken. I, I do because at the very start of when we were setting up the conversation, we had our videos on. Uh, I I did actually had to advise Ken that I wasn't going to stand up given it's six o'clock in the morning here, and. Uh, it's probably a good thing this isn't a video program. And uh, Ken, you were showing me something that you just got from Morocco to prove it was you. What was that? That was a snake charmer's uh, flute, which it turns out that when my friends go on long trips, they come and bring back something they're most confident that I will annoy other people with. And this is for charming snakes. <laughs> And it's not as cool unless you can see how really rustic and uh, phony uh, family heirloom it looks. It's really quite terrible. Oh, just for, for our, for our uh, listeners, hold it up to the microphone. Hold it up to the microphone. And I'll also, uh, I had some other exhibits that uh, as we're talking, uh, my uh, cousin is now on the island of Taito. Uh, in Japan, and she sent me these amazing little snacks, which seem to be a little bit like almonds and tiny little lamprey fish, dried lamprey fish. And occasionally, I will stick one in my mouth when I'm trying to speak some special kind of truth. That is very exciting, folks. That uh, while we're interviewing Ken, he is chewing on lampreys. I don't think that we've ever had. Impressive. I don't think that's yep. ever happened in the history of radio before, Jeff. I, I, I think that this is another first. Um, do, you just watch, do you just watch out, Ken, because uh, there was a, an English king who famously died of a surfeit of lampreys. So, uh... <laughs> oh, yes, and there was a guy in Malmsey Wine, but he wasn't a king. That was a, That's my way to go, in a butt of Malmsey Wine. Hey, wasn't that awesome, Eucalyptus the Fat Mob? He died of a surfeit of sugared <laughs> eels. Yes, yes, yes. Well done. To get the uh, to get so the Glorantha. You can always get a Glorantha connection to anything. So speaking of uh, Glorantha connections, we have, as uh, Jeff said, the original Runesar on uh, our program today, and that is super exciting. Ken, if we if we go back to what was called the 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 RuneQuest Renaissance. Alarmingly, that was now 23 years ago. Luckily, I don't use Earth years, so I don't have a particularly <laughs> clear idea like that. And since I, I feast on the blood of Christian infants, I don't get older. So a lot of these things that perhaps trouble other mortals are uh, more difficult. But uh, I'm not even conscious of the passage of time. Well, because you, time... Time just simply doesn't exist for you. You've managed that's to transcend it as, yes. as an awakened being. You know, that's one yes. of the prerequisites for becoming a Rinsar, I think, in the first place. Sort of like being a sock puppet for Nysalore. <laughs> I'm sure the lampreys come into this somewhere. <laughs> so, so, Kent, let's... Let's transport across space and time to those heady days of the RuneQuest Renaissance. How did you... I mean, this was a, a, a time when, um, for, for those of our listeners who don't remember what had happened to the bright promise of um, the early Avalon Hill RuneQuest era, this was a period where, where it, it, it started to look like Glorantha was going to disappear from the gaming map. And then came the RuneQuest Renaissance. And how did you even get put in that position in the first place, Ken? To be honest, I do not remember. It was uh, a long time after the publication of the uh, boxed set. And I was 
I'm not even sure I was involved in the publication of the box set at all, and maybe not even in the uh, Games Workshop version. But I had fallen, you know, uh, into other dark hobbies by that time. But at some point, the uh, Dot uh, Father Son uh, group, that's Eric, and help me with the other Jack. Name, Jack Eric Jack and Dot. Jack got in touch with me and said, would you like to do RuneQuest stuff? And I said, that's a terrible idea. I really want to do that. Wow, there goes my career or whatever it was. And uh, it was it, it was uh, simultaneously exciting and kind of terrifying because I don't know, uh, were any of you ever at um, Avalon Hill in Baltimore, the physical plant? No. No, I never made it there. Okay. Okay. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been in the back uh, rooms of a big printer, uh, someone who does print publishing. But essentially, we were in a tiny little cul-de-sac, and uh, it wasn't really a very nice office. It was kind of primitive. And all we could smell and hear was a very large uh, public printer in a fabulously sketchy part of Baltimore. And uh, it, it certainly wasn't as classy as some of the places that I had uh, been working, like when I went to visit um, Chaosium in, uh, in Oakland. Uh, they had the So you're saying it was not as the classy? Were and... No, 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 no. Well, I, I've been to Chaosium in Oakland, and that wasn't exactly in the best part of Oakland. And I remember walk, walking there past... Um, there was a motel, and this was uh, the first time I'd ever seen a motel that it didn't quite say transients welcome, but it did say inquire about our daytime and hourly rates. And that was just up the road from the Chaosia models. <laughs> On the other hand, guys, the wire was not made about Oakland. <laughs> no, it was made about Baltimore, probably just down the road from Avalon Hill. But to try to occasionally swing back across the mainstream of our uh, discussions. Uh, I uh, I think the first product I was involved in was Rivers of Cradles, which was a catch-all uh, put together with some new material, some old material, and to uh, re-immerse myself in uh, Glorantha. And, uh, Oh, Ken, I My, think I'm, I'm going to have to take you back one product before that, and that was... Sun County! Yeah. Yes! Yeah, 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 you're right. Absolutely. I was the editor on Sun County. That was my first uh, DTP, uh, desktop publishing uh, pro, uh, piece, and that was a lot of fun. I really loved that book, and I loved all the stuff that was in it. And then uh, River of Cradles came next. You're right. And then yep. after that was uh, Shadows on the Borderlands. Right, but with a, which was an anthology. Yep. And then there was uh, Strangers in, no, in Prax was, I think, the next one, wasn't it? Or was I it think Durastor? that's correct. No, no, uh, that's a tough one. I don't remember. It was, uh, I, I don't know which came first, Durastor or uh, Strangers in uh, Prax. So I think one of the, the great things about all those products, uh, apart from the, the wonderful material therein, was uh, the beautiful cover artwork. If you can remember, there was a sequential series for uh, River of Cradles and Strangers in Prax of the same characters, and I thought they were very, very evocative. I don't know. Roger Raup. Yeah, he was a he's a very fine artist. I have not thought about him in a long time. Yeah. He also he's did the cover of Sun County artist. too, yeah. Yeah, yes. fantastic. Yeah. And and I, I that that was something that I thought was uh very, very special with with, with those products. So Ken, that that's going back uh for for us mere mortals, uh about uh, twenty twenty years now. And uh I was talking to Jeff about the, the RuneQuest Renaissance uh, last night when we were setting up this interview. And, Jeff, what was the historical analogy you thought played out there? Oh, it was the uh, Carolingian Renaissance, Ken. Ah! That's what you presided over. See, the, the real <laughs> Renaissance is going on right now. 
Yeah, but, sort of a brutal but, and German kind of dirty axe murdering with tiny little Phillips of imports of nice things from the Far East. Yeah, sort yeah, of a yeah. renaissance, yeah. Well, it was a, it was a re- renaissance. It just didn't last very long. Yes, and I, I'd have to say it was built on a less uh, solid ground of uh, publishing, that is, uh, a continuity, a, a, a model that could continue, uh, and wasn't as clear about its audience either. So it didn't really have a good relationship with its audience yet. Yeah. Was now the um, that's a few years after the horrible Eldorad and Shadows <laughs> of Darkness period. So you know yes. you couldn't help but look. You know, just like a. Uh, Charles Charles the Great uh, Charlemagne couldn't help but look awesome after those uh, Merovingian kings. You know, you, you you couldn't help but stand out like a giant amongst men, like a sa, like yeah, a sa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a a name three principal exports of the Gepids. I mean, it turns out that you know Ostrogoths and guys <laughs> like that were not really they're they're not in the top ten of anything. <laughs> They, they might be in the top ten of goths, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's tough. It's yeah, it's a low bar. Hey, they are definitely in the top ten esoteric historical figures you think you ought to know something about. It's it's something you can name drop in the right crowd and uh, get an admiring eye. Exactly. Exactly. But you you uh, completely forgot because of Mob's Praxian focus. You completely forgot one of my favorite, which was uh, uh, you were the editor in chief on the Draster book, weren't you? Yes, and wrote a lot of that stuff, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Riskland is uh, I I don't think I have ever written anything particularly good for Glorantha because I'm always going to be measured against people like Mob and uh, like Sandy. But uh, I really enjoyed putting together uh, the Risk Land thing. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a light classic. Oh, I, I would say Risk Land is a classic. I, I, I would say, but without the Risk Land campaign, there never would have been uh, the King of Dragon Pass. Oh, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Really? Well, uh, yep, absolutely. Uh, interesting, because that kind of makes sense by accident. Because my my interest in general is never uh, uh, see try to put a context on this in uh, video gaming. Uh, you always want to have somebody in video game development on your development team who is a completist. That is someone who plays games all the way from the beginning to the end. And I am the absolute other end of the bell curve from that person. I'm the person who only plays the first hour or only really cares about the first hour. And uh, another way to look at it is it's kind of a continuity with LARPing and uh, freeforming in that I'm interested not in the progression of the character, which is a feature of video games in particular. It's a power gaming thing. You start to play so that you can become more powerful. But I've only really enjoyed tabletops or computer games or anything like that, that essentially where you're not struggling to play that game to make yourself better. You're playing at a fairly static level of power, and therefore you're constantly... I think feeling vulnerable. It's a vulnerability fantasy rather than a power fantasy. So I think the very best uh, stuff that I've done has been the early periods in a game, even when I first played Dungeons and Dragons, the first time I got leather armor and a shield in a Dungeons and Dragons game, I was more excited than I would ever be again when I gained something in loot. So those are the precious periods for me and experience and Riskland is set up that way so that it's a beginning campaign and you have a full sense of uh, of how vulnerable you are and how delicious even the most modest inputs that you make as a player are yeah oh, it's, it, 
absolutely wonderful campaign. I, it's, I, would th- I think it's actually the campaign that I have run the most in all of the years that I've been uh, not Lorantha Gaming. Not the Borderlands campaigns, because before, no. I believe the Borderlands campaign was not only the best I had played in uh, Glorantha, but it was the uh, uh, Palimpsest or the, uh, you know, the... Uh, the uh, shibboleth or whatever it was that secret word that you always use with other people to talk about quality for a beginning campaign setting mm-hmm. now, see, what was wonderful what was wonderful about the Durastra campaign just to, to, to continue this love in was that it it had a little bit of that Pendragon economics to it <laughs> but at a at a settler level, so you know you were had doing to. exactly what what ends up being the, the the King of Dragon Pass computer game. You come in, you clear off, you get some land, uh, you 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 try to maintain or or develop the little economic unit that is your stead while dealing with scorpion men, brew, and the fact that you're next to the most awful place in the entire world right before a major war starts. How and, about and that? That's wonderful. It's it's wonderful. It's one of the ones that I've I've wanted very very badly to revisit uh, with Moon Design because I think it's an absolutely fantastic campaign. I think everything that you said about that is what I re- regard as uh, its strength and its awesomeness, and at the same time is almost impossible to realize. Uh, I believe it's that. Uh, like if you can be at the lowest possible uh, entropy level, we, not in the sense of physics, but like in role-playing games, you talk about very low en- entropy tabletop games. At low power levels, the ability to be really worried about getting sandwiches for the next day and knowing that across <laughs> the border, the demons are living. You know, are the most powerful, horrifying, odd monsters in the world, and yet they have the society... To know that that's there, to not be strong enough to go there, but to have that part of the atmosphere of the campaign, that's so very hard to do. Oh, yeah. And that may be why we haven't visited it yet with the uh, Moon Design stuff, but it really it really was a, a gold standard for uh, running games. Completely changed the way that David Dunham and I uh, thought about what sort of stories you could be telling with a ro- uh, role-playing game, and you know that very quickly became uh, King of Dragon Pass just a few years later. Yeah, it's it's very clear that uh, there are resonances of that throughout the King of Dragon Pass game, and you very very clearly in that game get a sense that you are not on Earth, and that there are very very weird strange forces around you that. Uh, you don't really want to have to interact with if you if you can avoid, and I thought that was a great element of it. This this is a wonderful love fest here because I had no idea, and hearing you both speak about it coherently suggests to me that you didn't just make it up right now. So there may be something to what you said. Uh, certainly, it would have been beyond <coughs> my capacity to intend to have that kind of effect. It's just something I wanted to do. In other words, it's a joke I wanted to tell, confident that that was not a running gag that I could continue to support. Like the Elder Scrolls stuff is stuff that it was a running gag that once you get the basic idea, you can probably continue to publish that for the rest of your lives. An open world dog's breakfast of everything in the world and who knows what's going to happen. That's an experience that you would always know to come back to. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I could have had a series of risk lands or even the idea there's going to be another dragon pass is exciting. Uh, not the yeah, uh, King of dragon pass. That's hugely exciting. to me. Oh, this is going to be absolutely awesome. And we will be having David on the, the show in the not so distant future. Uh, but that is something that I that David and I have been talking about for quite a while, and the uh, stars aligned correctly, and now he is hard at work with um, doing uh, a lot of the concept art with uh, Jan Pospisil. And Jan is uh, the Czech artist who did those beautiful color plates uh, in the Guide to Glorantha. 
Right, right. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And it's just uh, just wild-looking um, stuff from what he's ha- uh, he has so far. It'll be a very... It'll be um, a similar game in terms of the fun is uh, King of Dragon Pass, but it'll have a... It's a very different setting and and concept. So, super excited about that. It's, uh, it's going to have the same uh, static paintings-based... Uh, architecture though isn't it oh absolutely because we're going to call it the graphic adventure uh graphic adventure uh choose a through e is that the kind of a um that is the encounters are presented that way as a list of choices that you make after a short narrative um uh premise uh with an illustration yes which just yep. lends itself beautifully to play on tablets and uh, and iPhones and things like that. It's just amazing. Uh, yeah, my uh, my my brother is um, uh, studying games design at uh, uni at the moment, and that retro stuff is so hip right now. Oh, really? Can you give me any other examples <laughs> of people using that? Because one of the things that struck me is King of Dragon Pass uh, was. A an evolutionary step forward, and then there were no progeny. Look, I, I very few. Go ahead. I, look, I, I can't give you any more examples, but I, I just know that, uh, and maybe in terms of game mechanism, it, it, it's still unique. But um, the the indie game scene with with games developed by one or two people that, that actually make reasonable amounts of money for for their creators. Is, is something that, that's really blown up um, over the last few years. And um, I, think, I think King of Dragon Pass uh, would, would be a very early example of, of that sort of game. Well, to give you an example of what kind of uh, piratical and corrupted uh, visionary excitement I get with game design, uh, among the things I was thinking of when I was working for uh, Warner Brothers at uh, Turbine and free-to-play games are going around, is that that is a fabulous model to use for uh, the Tolkien universe in the sense that it would be possible within a plausible budget to have at least a visual style and a way to enter into the physical culture and the personalities of the different people there. And also, it would work on tablets, and it could be done relatively cheaply. And more important from my point of view, you could play it in under two-minute um, uh, episodes in the sense that each of those encounters is the exact amount of a game that you can play and have fun and then get a, a, a feedback from it uh, in a very short period of time, which is the key for uh, free-to-play mobile games. Which is uh, interesting why... Uh... King of Dragon Pass wasn't uh, the big hit in 1999 when it first came out because it involved you putting a disc into a computer and clicking with your mouse. Mm-hmm. Now now you can touch it with your, your screen on your tablet and play it uh, asynchronously, I reckon. That's the, the big difference that's made it the success it is this time. Well, it certainly has been more successful as, uh, as a mobile application than as a PC game. Yeah, and it's been a great way for uh, people that don't know anything about the world of Glorantha to learn, learn about it. Uh, you know, my kids got very excited about King of Dragon Pass, and I'm, I'm kind of alarmed at the level of Glorantha knowledge that they absorbed just by working out how to uh, you know, stop the drought in the uh, King of Dragon Pass hero quest and things like that. And so, ah, yes, that is an unusual example as you, of improvisational uh, video game play because almost all video game puzzles are really scripted puzzles. Mm-hmm. And they are, in fact, scripted in Dragon Pass, but they're scripted in a poetic and analogical and uh, uh, yes. uh, puzzle, a, a different kind of a puzzle economy than normally. Yeah. So um, we'll also go back to, uh, you mentioned before, Ken, that you really like the idea of uh, being a beginning character in something or not necessarily starting uh, weak and becoming strong. One of the other things you can do in a game, of course, is start strong and work your way down. 
<laughs> no, by the way, give me an example of that. I've not had any of that. Oh, I can think of a really good one. I'm talking about LARPing, Ken. And, oh, yes. And I, I think back to a, uh, a LARP that you and I played in many years ago in the UK called How the West Was One, where you played... Oh, not, it was wonderful. Not yeah. Slaw the Holy Monk. Do you remember yes. that? Yes. I hardly had any pants on at all. Well, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there were any pants involved. I think there no. was a, a sheet. I think it, it was, was a sheet. It was a very. It was an inexpensive costume, uh, but yeah, very where, effective. Whereas, whereas, Ken, the last time I played a freeform with you, I think you had a, a costume that nearly killed you. This was that. Uh, <laughs> Russian freeform that we did. Oh, that was in so England. much fun! Oh, God bless Galliotti. Oh, yeah, this was from Mark Galliotti, who is a world famous uh, expert on Russian history. Wrote a, a freeform for Continuum some years back. And Ken, if I recall, you played a mute dancing bear. Yes. One of my favorite roles of all time, but as you point out, in the summer, perhaps not the most salubrious choice of casting. And, and uh, Mob, my great advantage in this game was is that I was the sole provider of liquid beverages <laughs> for the entire Freeform. And the only character, the only character that my character, the founder of organized crime in Russia, took pity on was Ken the Dancing Bear. It was So wonderful. he got to drink for free. Uh, that was a good thing, because I do remember that was a uh, very, was very a hot day. Yes, a very hot day, and in England, too, in England. So, uh, Ken, I remember when you were not Slaw the Holy Monk, and right? uh, th this was a this was a free form called How the West Was Won, and it was, it was a Gloranthan equivalent of um, a... It was like, Credo. It was Credo the Freeform. It, it was, let's be honest. Credo the <laughs> It was about 40 or 50 people in monk suits and, and Pope outfits, yes. And uh, <laughs> one thing I enjoyed about that with LARPing is uh, not necessarily starting off as a weak character and trying to be strong or win at the end, but start at the top and work your way down. And, and given I started as the Pope, um, there was only one way down for me in that in that game, and I think that was at the hands of Notslaw, the Holy Monk. I think you excommunicated me at one point, Ken, which was. Uh, did you have a crisis of faith? I did. Yes. Okay. For... Well, here's. I want to. I want to. I want to touch on this. I'm often very interested in the economy of narrative gaming about the great challenge of feeling like you make a, uh, a, you perform an action, you can see a change in a character in the world, and yet feel that it has some uh, kind of a gameplay texture. And that LARP had this remarkable mechanic in which every player, I'm not sure every player, but many players had a sealed envelope that said, if you have a crisis of faith, open this envelope. And each of you had certain uh, values of faith, and people could gradually erode your faith in gameplay. And then when you get to the end of, like when you've reduced a certain number of points, this is the mechanic, you open up your uh, envelope, you are confident that the player had no idea what was going to happen then. And you had this great suspense dramatic moment, the both of you, uh, and if you had an envelope that you weren't able to open until this happened, you were always thinking about it. So it was a, a present, heavy presence in your mind. And then you open it up, you get something, and it's surprising, and then you get to perform that on the spot. There is nothing more gratifying than feeling like this is a reversal of fate or reversal of fortune, or suddenly the world has changed, and I did that. I did it in a gaming way, and at the same time, it feels narratively coherent. It was fantastic. And and the way the uh, theological debates were done in this yes. game was with yes. rock, paper, yeah. scissors. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We had combat, uh, combat theology. Thus, yeah. I refute you. 
<laughs> yeah, so then you went one, two, three, rock, paper, scissors. Um, yeah. I believe, Ken, I, I remember you had declared me anathema. Yes. And, yes, yes, yes. And I think I then had to open up my envelope. And fortunately, because I was the Pope, I think I was able to forgive myself. Which, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think I still ended up uh, being excommunicated and excoriated and probably buried and dug up afterwards. And, and I don't think there's a problem with that. I don't mind starting at the top and working my way down in a, a LARP if, if it means that, uh, you know, it's making the game yeah, fun. Mob, Mob, I've gamed, I've played a lot of free forms with you over the years, and that, that seems to be a pretty common theme with you. <laughs> it's not my favorite too. Top, <laughs> not starting at the top and working your way down is the excoriated. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many free forms I played in uh, played with you in the the the, the last ten years, where uh, about two thirds to three fourths through the game, you die horribly. Yes. Just horribly. And it's wonderful. It's you can almost you know, it's 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 part of the popcorn of the game. I love being betrayed by everyone and then savoring. <laughs> my wife sells me out and then my best friend uh, uh, backstabs me and then I get stabbed to death by Cyrano de Bergerac, who I've challenged uh, to a duel like a in a in a King's Musketeers game. I really love that. It's it's not so much the collapse from a great power. It's the knowing you're doomed and that everything you do that's in character uh, greases the slide into your <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's the sort of thing I enjoy doing too. I've Ken, I, I don't know if you're aware, but I've actually spent the last 10 years in a 24-hour live-action role-playing game, Freeform. No. Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. Tell me, Mom. Yeah, I've, I've been living in the Middle East um, mm. and uh, working for a, uh, well, it, it could be described as a university or it could also be described as a agglomeration of semi-independent warring fiefdoms. And uh, You have a you... prince, don't you, in fact? Don't you serve the dark whims of a prince? Uh, I actually, I actually, I work directly for a shake. Oh, that's and, awesome! Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I used to have to go to his uh, palace for lunch and and sit in his majlis and and. You got to eat his camel. I did have to get get to eat his camel, and I can tell you, after going there for lunch, the first twenty or thirty times, it does start to lose its zing. But uh, the yeah, the institution I work for was a bit like being in a live action role-playing game and after after 10 years i worked out that um you know in the soviet politburo there was one guy who survived from lenin to brezhnev and i was starting to feel like that guy (laughs) (laughs) well uh, 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 don't don't forget to tell that story about what the first publication you had in the equivalent of the Yale Press for those people. I remember you told me this story. It was a long time ago. Something about women's rights, a publication? Well, I've, I've, been, doing a, I've been doing a lot of work with uh, training people to be teachers there, and, and sadly we only had uh, females that wanted to be teachers. The uh, Ministry of Education there did claim that 10% of all teachers, uh, all male teachers were, were locals, were Emiratis, but I didn't believe that number. I believe that number, instead of being a 10%, it was actually 10, and I could name them. <laughs> <laughs> but Ken, so I've been off doing a, uh, a live-action role-playing game for the last uh, 10 years. Can we, can we move on and talk about what you've been up to for the last 10 years? Because it's, it's been pretty exciting. I have almost no idea. One of the things, uh, because I have a very short attention span, I was ADD long before they had ADD, and I ate up most of the air of ADD before it was available as a uh, a branded product. Uh, But I went from tabletop to miniatures, uh, did a lot of LARPs, and then finally ended up in video games. And all of those things was a constant kind of a migratory carrying of my uh, the influences of 
uh, Glorantha and uh, RuneQuest and KOCM and all the people that uh, I've worked with on the products uh, that uh, either as writers or as playtesters often formed my ideal notion of what a development uh, environment should be like. There had to be some really smart, reckless idiots who scribble on blank pages. And those are usually the writers. And they make some kind of a document. And then after that, in paper, you know, it's a publication in video games, it's using those documents to create uh, artistic programming game systems environment that can render the video game in the same way that it would be as a published uh, 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 paper game. But putting together that uh, group of people who are really, really smart, and then the people who can massage the document and make it beautiful and communicate, and then the play testers, who are really the people who you steal all the delicious truth out of. Uh, that, because it's the contact point between these great ideas that forces the game designer to make a product that really communicates, uh, that, that makes tools for the players and makes space for the players to create their own worlds. And where do you see you fitting into that? Which, which guy are you? I'm uh, I'm an editor, definitely. I'm not a really, really smart guy, and I'm not really a player. I'm really sort of like the, the in-between guy. I, uh, I can play, but I can only play extremely uh, end-of-the-bell curve players. I don't so, have a... So, so the equivalent in LARPs of a, the guy in the bear suit or the guy yeah. in the sheet... Oh, uh, you're right. Absolutely. And you should not design games for those people. Those games should be designed so that most of the people can look off to the farthest edges and see some of that as color, but then get on with business, you know, which is power or murdering other people or stabity stabity or faction versus faction. That's great stuff. But, uh, yeah, I see myself as a guy who is essentially a teacher. Uh, I, I started out being a teacher. I taught public school for uh, eight years, and I'm good at understanding how you communicate. I'm uh, motivated to help people communicate well. I like something that looks readable and feels readable, but I particularly like to see the responses of the audience and then go through those periods of revision that make it better each time, partly because they told me what was broken, but also because I steal the juices of their play. Like Then I get the whole bell curve, everybody under the bell curve, little samplings. And, and mm. by the way, Glorantha was awesome for that. Wonderful writers, wonderful creators, but the players were of such a high level of sophistication, charm, and they were good at getting obscure jokes. Well, have you? I've noticed that you've been on the uh, the Glorantha Google Plus uh, site in recent uh, recent days, and and as one of the the guys on the the crazy reckless goofy writer bit, I have to say I find it so rewarding to see people that I don't know running with random ideas that I've had, and frankly shining them so nicely that they're much. You know, what they come up with ends up being better than what I uh, had written in the first place. And, of course, I steal it blind. Absolutely. Uh, Our job is essentially because we have somehow tricked people into letting us do this for a living to provide some kind of a coherent continuity and uh, tools. Mostly it's tools. Tools for expressing themselves. I I agree. And... and it, it was so exciting with, uh, you know, that Sun County stuff all those years ago that we'd just have a few lines about something in there and people could take it away and turn it into thousands and thousands of words of uh, interesting, goofy stuff. I, I'm thinking of a particular document called The Secret History of Sun County, <laughs> which was which was all based on the, the fact that uh, there's a place in Sun County called South... South fork 
<laughs> which uh, apparently the family there made their fortune from something called called black gold. And uh, the pers- one of the people that uh, had written up a whole lot of stuff about that material didn't realise that that was just a joke about Dallas, if you remember the yes, <laughs> the TV show at the time. Uh, Michael, I've heard that story before. Did she eventually realise it was just a joke about Dallas? Yes, yeah, she'd never seen she'd never seen the show, but uh, that didn't actually stop the quality of uh, the material that had been put together. It was it was it was fantastic. So Ken, we're we're, we're going to have to wind up. Well, fairly... Wait, wait, wait! I got a, I've, I've got a, a, a before we go into the three questions. Yeah. Okay. That that Ken is been reintroducing himself into Clarantha in in recent days, recent weeks? How yes. long, Ken? Yes. Uh, essentially and, just maybe a week. And how are you enjoying the the second renaissance? Uh, I stuttered at uh, Prince of Sartar. Those two chapters are so much better at communicating that um, mystic distant uh, aura of culture that you find in a folklore tale or folk heroes or something like that. And in a medium which I'm not very familiar with, graphic um, comics, uh, but wow, they were good. Uh, And, you know, I admit I carry around my guide to Glorantha back and forth between the bathroom and other places because it's one of those great places, uh, great ways that I can read a little fragment and just stare off into the distance. It's also great exercise because it weighs about uh, seven pounds. Pretty, yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's it's so big that I really haven't gotten a chance to start thinking at a map level. When I when I have always been most in love with uh, Glorantha, it's been when I essentially in my head thinking of little travel itineraries from one place to another on the map and trying to picture the people the landscapes and I'm you know that's uh, I I have not had the leisure to do that now that I'm fabulously retired and uh, I think my new uh, business card title is uh, what is it Uh, useless overhead Uh, (laughs) now that I have this time to do that stuff I, I'm kind of stunned, almost stunned into uh, inaction because there's so much. I want to go back and play King of Dragon Pass for, to start with. I, I just, you know, I'm excited. Well, I, I want to see one of your travel itineraries. I, no, no, it's it's like each travel itinerary will generate nodes, and I'll pick one node, and then I will in my head, develop some little piece on. I think I had a broken, choking story in Mobs. In Mobs, it was a phony uh, fanzine. Uh, And that was an example. It's just I I thought of an itinerary and then thought of something I could find in the dust. Uh, And it's a broken uh, uh, dragon newt throwing Choking. a star yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that story is in uh british traditional ballads the broken token like the uh the lovers break a coin in half and promise to come back together and put those coins together and then there's always some they're away for a while and then they come back and they recognize each other because they can match their tokens even though they've changed people at any rate it's the it's going from the moving across the map and then for a moment entering the map at a uh, physical geographical level, thinking about what's the color of the dirt on the road, who are the people nearby, and then finding something that fits to me as a, uh, a, a piece of physical culture that generates an entire uh, narrative premise. That's, and. and- Ken, I'm honoured to think that uh, you've exemplified that in that article about the Chokin, which yeah. is in Gorp magazine. Oh, the mighty Gorp? 
which is the... Uh, the collector... Hey, Mob, come the, on. Gorp is the Glorantha collector's item of all time. <laughs> and, and Ken, um, I'm going to introduce you now to producer Rob, who was in fact the uh, illustrator of the front cover of that oh magazine. Oh my God, that is so <laughs> weird. Yes, uh, although I, I have to say... Um, it is heavily plagiarised from the front cover of um, um, On Stranger Tides, the 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 the, the Tim, oh. Tim Powers novel. I, I uh, thought, um, although a I different thought... version than we have in the states, I think. Then, oh well, well I, I, I think there are different covers in different markets. I, I think very possibly when when they used it as a basis for one of the pirates of the Caribbean movies, they probably did give it a, ah. give it a brand new cover. But the um, I, I, mind you, I, I only plagiarised from the best because uh, that cover was done by James Gurney, uh, who of, of Dinotopia fame. And, oh, uh, I, and, I, and I did th- I, I did think I, I actually changed the skeleton enough so that it was homage rather than straight out plagiarism. But, and also, um, Rob, I had to tell you, just like you, Ken, I said I need you to write me an article as if you were 18 years younger because this yeah. this this fanzine was allegedly published in 1982. I had to keep telling Rob, Rob, you're drawing too well. Dial it down. <laughs> dial it down. <laughs> Well, I have to say, the thing about that project was I had never drawn a woman in a chain male bikini, and I just thought, um, this has to be done for this project. Uh, it is time. Yes. <laughs> so, so Ken, we're going we're gonna to have to wind up, but um, we, we're going to finish... But with... the, we, we need the snake charmer music. Uh, uh, no, no. Just a little... Uh, no. That's enough. Um, now, I, I need to pass on a, a personal message uh, before we wind up, uh, because when I told my, uh, I've got uh, two older children, Nick and Ben, who are 17 and 15, and when I told them I was interviewing the, um, the game designer for Elder Scrolls, uh, they, were, they were very excited. Um, and from my son Nick, uh, he thought Elder, Elder Scrolls Morrowind was awesome. So there you go. It, it is the homage to Glorantha. Uh, all the other products are amazing in their own particular way, but nothing since. Uh, uh, one analogy I make is Morrowind is Moby Dick as Oblivion is to the movie Titanic. Uh, it's it's much better. Uh, Titanic is a much more entertaining mass market uh, product, whereas Morrowind, just like Glorantha, is fabulously too dense, too complicated, too rich, uh, doesn't deserve to exist. And then after that, it's you know after that, it's just not any fun to try to do it again. But uh, I enjoyed uh, and. Tell him thank you because I'm a shy retiring flower and I need some encouragement. <laughs> I will indeed. <laughs> so we, we finish off all of our interviews with some goofy questions that come from, if you remember, the maximum game fun rules. Oh, maybe. yes. Yeah. So um, we're going to ask you these, see if you can come. Just a quick response would be fine. What's Ken, what's one thing that you think you do better than the average gamer? Crawl on my belly like a reptile when I want to, no matter what the plot requires or what will produce the maximum confusion or lack of forward plot movement. <laughs> Very good. I like the fact that there's sirens in the background. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty standard. So what's the one thing you do worse than the average gamer? I do not keep track of any numbers. I always either pretend to understand what the game's master has said or to have looked at the... Du- you saw... Again, anybody see me play Paranoia will see me roll dice conspicuously and not look at them and then announce the uh, uh, the outcomes. In so, fact, in, throughout those Paranoia books, there's always instructions to the game master, isn't there, about roll dice yes. enthusiastically and say whatever you want. <laughs> and, and, and I believe, Ken, that was the first thoughts that, that drove towards storytelling narratives and, and, in fact, the maximum game fun idea of just do stuff that's going to be fun. So, Ken, what's one thing everyone knows about you as a gamer? 
I, I'd be shocked to know that there isn't everyone that knows about me. Uh, but if, the, if it were people who know about me who play games with me, uh, one thing that they all know is that I'm always willing uh, to pursue the worst possible plan. Uh, now, any, I, if people start a plan in a tabletop role-playing game, I wait until one is so epically bad, and then I become enthusiastic and try to persuade everybody to go that way. You should come and work at the institution I just worked at for 10 years. <laughs> right in. And, and, and Ken, finally, what's one thing people probably don't know about you as a gamer? That I occasionally do pretend to have romantic interests in role-playing games and that I can, to some extent, uh, become a teenager again by falling in love with characters. And it's something I wouldn't show anyone. No, it's creepy. Not (laughs) all. Yuck! Oh! Old man! (laughs) Oldest living teenager. (laughs) Uh, Ken, someday we've got to get you out here to Berlin where you can play in a game where everybody gets to, to, to have that oldest living teenager vibe and nobody is power gaming. Uh, I would not be surprised to find those kind of people. And with any kind of luck, maybe at Kraken uh, this year, we'll see. Well, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Mob, is that it for the questions? That's it. We're done. My God, this zoomed by. And oh, I had way sun, too much fun. The, the sun's now come up here too, um, because Rob and I got up at the crack of dawn for this today. This is this is an international podcast. Rob and I are in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And Jet, what time of the morning is it for you there, Mob? It's now seven o'clock in the morning. It is now 9 o'clock. I've been sitting back uh, sipping on a nice glass of Spanish red wine. Yeah, uh, baby. your breakfast. Garnacha? <laughs> I, I have to say, Jeff, if, if, if me and Mob had been sitting back sipping on a nice glass of Spanish red wine, we would have uh, even even worse problems than, than, than we already do. So we, 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 we'd be sipping on, some, uh, sipping on some nice Nespresso coffee. Yeah. I'm glad I don't have the video on now, but I'm holding in my hand a little... I'd be sipping from my bacon and banana shampoo and mouthwash, which was this year's Christmas... <laughs> This and uh, the back cut. Co- uh, this is every year for Christmas. I make up uh, products to give to people who wish they didn't get them, and uh, make up the graphics and things. The back uh, says "perfectly safe for topical use only," and its ingredients are bacon salt, banana extract, and tasty shampoo. So that's what I'd be sipping on. I'm sure it's well, halal. Be- I'm sure it is halal. Ted, <laughs> <laughs> are we going to be able to get you back on this again? Oh, uh, did I seem like I was having trouble having fun? <laughs> I'm going to take that as a yes. Yes, I'd be happy to. Thanks. We we appreciate talking, Ken, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Well, off you go, talk then. Talk to you later, Ken. <laughs> and that concludes another tale of Mythic Adventure, coming to you via download at mythicadventure.com and on iTunes. This was a Rabbit Hat production in association with Moon Design Publications. No ducks were harmed in the production of this podcast, but that didn't stop a pack of beastmen from dropping in to warn us to leave them alone.